Now today, this week, we're going to be finishing Matthew chapter 6, and as we do so, Jesus is going to be exhorting his followers to stop worrying and to trust God for their daily provision. Now we're going to learn today to distinguish between worry and work. While the Bible does consider preparation work to be noble, it does prohibit worry. And so today, you and I are going to be learning to gain trust, lose the worry, as we learn to trust God for all that we need in our day-to-day lives. Now, I want to begin today in Matthew 6.25. And here, Jesus, again, is going to challenge us as to where our focus in life is. Is it on merely our daily provisions and our daily needs, or is it on the future kingdom? Listen to what he says. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Now, dear ones, let me pull up my pointer here. I want you to notice the very first part of this verse, very first clause, where Jesus says, for this reason, at least that's how Matthew has recorded him. And I want you to see that that connects us back to verse 24, where we were challenged last time to consider whether or not we were going to serve God or whether we were going to serve our wealth. And obviously, the idea is that we should serve God. And if we're going to serve God, The connection to this week's message is that you and I have to lose the worry. The worry for our daily needs must cease. And so notice here, Jesus says, do not be worried. Notice he does not say, do not work. Yes, we are called to work, but not worry. The term worry there, Mary Maneo, it occurs six times in this section. So six times in the verses that we're covering today, Jesus is going to be addressing the problem of worry. In the scriptures, we're going to learn that you and I are called to work and make preparation for tomorrow's meal. In fact, that's a virtue. But what worry does is it moves us from the place of preparation to a place where we no longer trust that God can provide for us in our daily needs. And so that's the problem with worry. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't do anything for us. Now, notice here, Jesus says, do not be worried about your life. The term life here Pasuke in the Greek can sometimes refer to the soul, the immaterial portion of man. In fact, that is how the term is used in Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus will say, don't fear man who can destroy the body, but God who can destroy both body and soul, Pasuke, in hell. Well, here I think the New American Standard Bible is correct in rendering it the entirety of our life. And the idea then is our life is not to be simply focused on our daily needs. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? If our focus is only on those things, we're going to have a very difficult time focusing on the demands of Christ and the proclamation of his gospel. Now, at the very end of verse 25, I think Jesus' question here, it's a rhetorical one. It is significant because it focuses our mind as to what we should be focusing on. Notice he asked the question, is not life more than clothing and the body more than, or excuse me, more than food and the body more than clothing? What's the obvious answer to that question? Well, of course life is more than that. Of course it is. The rhetorical question demands yes to be the answer. So what Christ wants us to do here is to focus not on merely our daily needs, but at a higher level, not just simply worrying about where our next meal is going to come from or to put it in the American vernacular, where we're going to get our next clothing deal at the Gap 
right? It's not about those things. And so what he wants us to do is to focus on our responsibilities that we have with Christ in his coming kingdom. That's what we're going to see. Dear ones, if you and I are in our worry are going to focus merely on our daily needs, it's going to be very difficult for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, as we approach here, verses 26 through 27, Jesus is going to be using a lesser to greater argument. If God takes care of the lesser animals, how much more will he take care of you, his people? Notice he continues. He says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, dear ones, notice, first of all, Jesus contrasts the birds with human beings. Notice the birds are not those who gather into barns as we as human beings do. They don't toil. They don't work. And the point is, without such great preparations, the birds still eat. Now, Jesus isn't saying somehow that God is merely just dropping food into the beaks of the birds and that's all they have to do is open their mouths. No, they still have to go out and find their food and they have to eat it. But Jesus' point is that the birds have no worry and even though they're of much less value than you and I, God still feeds them. He still cares for them. Now, notice in blue... We have another rhetorical question. Jesus says, are you not worth much more than they? What's the obvious answer to that? Of course we are. Of course we're of far greater value than the animals. Now here, Jesus is reiterating what we learn in the opening chapter of Genesis, that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. By the way, as an image bearer of God, you don't have to earn that. That is something inherent to you from the moment of conception on. And so all human beings deserve protection and deserve respect. Why? Because they're image bearers of God. Now, what's very sad to me is that as we look at our culture today, we see the rise of these animal rights groups and pantheism and environmentalism. And so now human beings are often depicted as just being on par with the rest of creation, the rest of the animal world. In fact, some years ago, perhaps some of you saw this article The article was put out by PETA. I'll never forget it. PETA is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And in the article, it had a picture of someone grilling chicken on their grill outside. And the title of the article was, The Holocaust on Your Plate. And of course, these people who are very morally confused were morally equating the death of millions of Jews, people made in the image of God, with that of you having a a chicken barbecue in your backyard. Okay, dear ones, we have to think differently than that. And we'll talk in our application more about how Jesus saying these very words here really should challenge everyone to say, isn't the rest of creation really about humanity and God giving us the command to be fruitful and multiply? In fact, we'll see that in our application. But I want you to see another rhetorical question here in verse 27. Notice he says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And the obvious answer is none of us can. Why? Because worry doesn't do anything. Worry is unprofitable. In fact, I became a little bit of a poet this week as I wrote this down, so bear with me. Let me give you a little jingle you can keep in your mind. Worry is unprofitable. It cannot add anything to our lives. It only steals and it never provides. Now, I'm going to say that one more time because it's my last chance to be a poet. Worry 
is unprofitable, it can add nothing to our lives. It only steals and it never provides. Brothers and sisters, what you and I have to learn, I think, in this message is the ability to differentiate between work and planning, which go hand in hand. We are called to do that, and I'll prove that from the Scriptures in our application. Yes, we are to work for our food, and we are to prepare for our future, but we are never to worry. And the difficulty for us as human beings is to differentiate and to say, well, you know, when does preparation and work become worry? That's the difficulty for us. Let me tell you, in some sense, I've been preaching this sermon all week to myself because I have been a professional worrier for years. I grew up, uh, I became a a pilot very early on. I soloed an airplane on my 16th birthday. I'm going to tell you kind of what I went through so you'll understand where I'm going, where the worry came from. I got my pilot's license when I was 17. Then I had to get my instrument rating when I was 18. I had a commercial rating when I was 19. I was a flight instructor by the time I was 20. And I was hired by the airlines by the time I was 23. And all of the ratings that you got, you had to take an oral exam, a flight exam, a written exam. It was very costly, very expensive, very time-consuming. So when you get to the airlines, everything that you've done prior to that, if you fail the check ride in the airlines, everything that you've done is worthless because you're never going to get a decent job. So I'm at Masaba Airlines. I'm hired on. And you know where my simulator session is? It's down in San Antonio, Texas. I love Texas. But the time slot is brutal. I flew the Saab 340, and my time slot was from 1 in the morning till 5 in the morning. Now, back in the day when I was 23 years old, I don't know why I don't suffer from them now, but if I was sleep-deprived, I would get migraines. Well, that's enough to drum you out of the airlines. And so I was worried, first of all, about getting migraines because I wasn't going to sleep enough. Well, then the more you worry, the less you can sleep, and it ends up being a self-fulfilling cycle. Many of you have gone through that cycle yourselves. Well, finally, in the last weeks of my training, being sleep-deprived and delirious, I had to come to the conclusion, if I was going to make it as an airline pilot, I, was, I just told God one day, just under my breath, I was actually in the bathroom, and so I wasn't speaking out loud, people thinking I'm crazy, but I said to God in my, under my breath, Lord, all I can do is do the work and show up. You have to make it happen. I'm too tired. I'm delirious. I'm worried about getting migraines and all these things. And so I kind of stumbled like a blind squirrel finding a nut onto what I think the Scriptures call us to do. And again, I failed many times since, but at that time it really worked. Dear ones, you and I are called in the Scriptures to work and prepare for our future and for our family, but then ditch the worry. Trust all of the results up to God. And so perhaps you're going through something in your own life, in your work, or maybe you're working for a career in school. Do what you can do and give the rest to God. That's what we're called to do in the Scriptures. Yes, we work, we prepare, but we ditch the worry. Now, as we get into verse 28 through 29, Jesus now moves from the care of birds by God now to plant life. In fact, he's going to mention lilies. The term for lilies here, crinone, probably refers to wildflowers that were growing in the fields of grass. Listen to what Jesus continues to say. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothes himself like one of these. Now, the first point I want to point out here that Jesus makes is notice he says that the lilies do not toil. Now, the term toil there, kopiao, 
is a term that's often used for very difficult work, oftentimes by farmhands. It's an agricultural term. And so the idea is that these lilies are not toiling about, they're not working in any way, and yet God is the one who still causes them to grow. And so by contrast, what we have to learn, I think, is that yes, we in our worries and our carrying on, we think that we have to do it, but all the while we forget that in our daily lives we also are completely reliant upon God for his provision. That's what we should take away from the lilies. In fact, how good is it God at at providing for the lilies? How good is he? Well, notice verse 29. Jesus says, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Solomon is known in the Old Testament as being the most glorious of all of the Old Testament Israelite kings. His wisdom, his glory is proverbial. In fact, if you want to read about it, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 10. Later in Matthew 12, 42, Jesus will allude once again to the glory of Solomon. And then Jesus will say something greater than the glory of Solomon is here pointing to himself. Now, I say this because Solomon, think about it, in some sense, the glories of his kingdom were like a down payment or a foreshadowing that pointed to the one day coming of the future messianic kingdom that would be the most glorious kingdom of all time. In fact, you know in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 19, in fact, jot that down if you're a note-taker, Genesis 15, verses 18 through 19, God had promised to Abraham that the borders of Israel would run from the Nile in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates up in Mesopotamia. And of course, the borders of Israel have never reached that in history. One day, in the millennial kingdom, they will. But they became closest under the reign of Solomon. Solomon in his wisdom, Solomon in his dress, Solomon in his kingdom was glorious. And yet here we learn that a simple lily that God alone cares for is far greater and even rivals the glory of Solomon. Can God be trusted as a provider? Well, you bet. As we would say in Minnesota, you betcha. He sure can. That's what God can do. And so therefore, he can be trusted. That's the idea. Now, Jesus' lesser to greater argument here in verses 30 through 32 reaches its conclusion. Notice he continues. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, dear ones, first notice Jesus' conditional language in this question that goes from a lesser to greater. Notice on the screen, he says, Hey, If God clothes the grass of the field, the lesser, how much more is he going to clothe you, the greater? Lesser to greater. What's the obvious answer? Well, of course, he's going to clothe you. Now, let's remember, you and I as human beings, of course, are image bearers of God. And let's remind ourselves, every human being from conception on, remember only two sexes, male, female, are all image bearers of God. That's what the Bible teaches deserving respect and protection. But not all image bearers 
are also children of God. Only people who come to faith in Jesus Christ become adopted sons and daughters in the family of God, the very family of God that we were just singing about in our worship today. And so think about it. Not only are you and I image bearers of God, but we're also his children. So how much more is he going to care for us and make sure that we're clothed? In fact, notice he says, you have little faith. Dear ones, isn't it interesting? The care given to God's people is not dependent upon our great faith, but the great faithfulness of God. The scriptures don't teach that you and I are great people of faith who have a little Savior, but rather we're people who have little faith, but we have a great Savior, a great provider, a great God who can care for us. That's the idea. And so that's why we don't have to be consumed with the little details of life. Notice in verse 31, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? We don't have to be consumed with those things. And by the way, who is consumed with those things? The Gentiles. I'll mention that in just a moment, what he means by that. But think about it. You and I, as we sit here today in 2022 America, we may forget how difficult it was to put a meal on in ancient Israel. It was exceedingly time-consuming. Think about it. You didn't just go to the Gap or JCPenney's and buy a new pair of Levi's. You had to make your clothing, typically, or buy it, but it was expensive. Think about how laborious and time-consuming it was in ancient Israel simply to get water. Now you and I turn on a faucet, and hopefully, by God's grace, it comes out pretty good, right? You can drink it. But that's not the way it was. And so I say this because you and I, living in the U.S., it may be hard for us to think about the worry that they had, but the way to put it in our vernacular is we have mortgage payments. We have car payments. We have the threat of not making the grade in whatever classes we're taking. We have family pressures and work pressures. And so, yes, we have the worries of life as well. But the point is we don't have to be consumed with them. We can cast those worries upon the Lord. Now, notice here, Jesus says the Gentiles eagerly seek all these daily provisions. I think Jesus is using the term Gentiles here probably in the sense of a pagan. Not that he denigrates all Gentiles. In fact, when we get to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus will congratulate that Gentile Roman centurion. In fact, he'll say, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. But the way he's using Gentiles here is that they were the ones who were far off from the promises, the covenants, and the revelation of God. And so, yes, pagans, that's how I would render it, for the pagans eagerly seek all these things. That's what they're focused on because they're not focused on the kingdom of Christ. But, dear ones, you and I are to be different. Notice in blue, we can trust the Heavenly Father who knows the need that we have for all these things, and He knows it in advance. How many in here have ever heard of the term Jehovah Jireh, the name for God? Most of you have heard of that in here. That's the Latinized form of the Hebrew, Yahweh Yurah. And most of you know it rightly as the Lord provides. But first and foremost, it actually means the Lord sees. And the idea in the scripture is that the Lord sees in advance the needs of his people. And therefore, he provides just at the right time. Think about When we go to Mount Moriah, when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son, his only son. Do you remember what the Lord provided there? 
he provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket so that Isaac could be spared. And you remember when that happens, Abraham in Genesis twenty two fourteen, he called that place Yahweh Yerah. The Lord will provide. Some 1,800 years later, the Lord provided the ultimate sacrifice, his son, so that we could have not just a temporary provision day to day, but an eternal provision for everlasting life. And isn't it interesting as we read Genesis twenty-two fourteen, Abraham does not call Mount Moriah the place where Abraham obeyed, the place that Abraham worked. He called it Yahweh Yerah, the Lord provides. Brothers and sisters, you serve a God who sees exactly what you need and he's going to provide it exactly at the right time. That's the God that you and I serve. Now, as we continue on in the last verses here, verses 30 through 34, Jesus now explains what should consume the minds of his people. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice, first of all, Jesus commands all of us to seek first his kingdom and the righteousness associated with that. That is for the believer. Our focus should be seeking not just daily provision, but rather Christ, his kingdom, and the righteousness associated with it. Now, very interestingly, this command, it's an imperative form of zeteo, it is a command that no human being left to their own devices can obey. Why do I say that? When God commands us to seek him, we can't do that left to our own natural devices because every human being is made, I should say born, a dead sinner in Adam. We know that for many passages. Think about Romans 3.11. It says, none seek after him, no, not one. So here you have Jesus commanding us to seek after him, but yet the unregenerate cannot seek after him. Jesus also says in John 15.16 to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So what does it mean? It means that the Lord has to first seek us. Doesn't Jesus say in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him? And when he says can, not that no one can, he's not talking about permission, he's talking about ability. No one has the ability to come to Jesus, uh, Jesus unless the Father draws him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So what we can conclude is that just like back in Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, none of us can do that without the power of God. So this is a command for believers, those who have been given a regenerate heart, those who have a heart that have been changed by the power of the Spirit, who trust in Christ, who have forgiveness of sins, and for the first time can do the things of God, can actually seek his kingdom. And so this is what Jesus wants us to be consumed with. Not daily provision, looking for the next meal or the next clothing deal at the gap, but we are to be on a higher plane focused on proclaiming the person and work of Christ and living accordingly a godly lifestyle. Notice here in verse 34, Jesus now comes to his inference or his conclusion. Notice he says, so. 
Now, the term there in Greek, un, is an inferential conjunction. In fact, I like the ESV better. It's therefore, therefore, what's the conclusion? Do not worry about tomorrow. The term worry, again, this is the sixth usage in the verses we've just covered. We are not to worry about tomorrow. Why? Because we belong to a God who provides for us. Again, you and I are called to work. We are called to plan, but ditch the worry. Let me give it to you one more time. Worry doesn't add anything to our lives. It only steals. It never provides. The one who does provide is Yahweh Yerah, the Lord who sees your need and will provide it when you need it. That's the one we are to focus on. That's the one we can trust. Now, with that, let me come to some applications that I think flow from this text. Number one, we should know that God values humans above the rest of his creation. Before election day that's coming up this coming Tuesday, I think this is more pertinent than ever. Number two, we should realize that the Bible prohibits worry, not hard work and planning. And I'll show you from the texts of Scripture that we as the people of God are called to have a work ethic and work hard, but not to worry. Number three, we should know that seeking Christ's kingdom leads to eternal provision. Yes, one day you and I are going to be provided forever for in the kingdom. That's the provision that every human being needs, the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin with number one. I think it's important to point out in this passage that Jesus elevates humanity above all of the other creatures. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26, asking the rhetorical question, are you not more valuable than they? The obvious answer is yes, we're more valuable than the birds. And we find in the scriptures that we're more valuable than all of the beasts of the air, the beasts of the field, and those in the sea. Why? Because we're human beings made in the image of God. But today, in the world that we live in, there's no more damaging idea than environmentalism. Environmentalism devalues humans and it elevates not just animals to be on par with us, but even plant life. And today, I want you to think about how the world is shoving environmentalism down our throat. I talked about this in a message a couple of years ago that was entitled, The Tale of Two Cities, The World Builds Babylon. Well, today, thanks to environmentalism, what's happened? Well, in Sri Lanka, thanks to left-wing environmentalism, People had to violently overthrow their government. Why? Because they couldn't eat. In Germany today, people are chopping down trees in their green endeavor so that they can heat their home because they don't have fossil fuels. American families can hardly afford to eat and put gas in their car. All thanks to left-wing environmentalism. And it's all because the biblical view that human beings have dominion over the earth has been jettisoned for our Marxist, pantheistic, environmental worldview. And what I want you to think about is that this worldview is leading to the hardship of many human beings around the planet made in the image of God. And one of the reasons I mention this is your kids and your grandkids, when they go off to college, they're going to hear, for example, that Nazism is a right-wing phenomenon. What I'm going to show you today is that that's not true. See, when I grew up and I went to college, I also heard the same thing. From your perspective, what I heard is that on the left, if you went too far left, you become a communist. If you go too far to the right, you become a Nazi. That, that's absurd. What you'll actually find is that Nazism and communism are both on the left. 
Now, a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute, didn't the Nazis and the communists fight in World War II? Well, yes, but so do the the Sunni and the Shia Muslims. They have a lot in common and they fight. Catholics and Protestants have done a lot of fighting in their day, and some people would say we have some things in common, although when it comes to the gospel, we don't have much. So oftentimes, groups that have a lot in common will fight. You see, what the left will do today is they'll say, well, these Nazis were national socialists. And because they're nationalists, they'll only focus on the nationalists. Therefore, a nationalist must be a Nazi. Well, let's ask ourselves, Nelson Mandela was a nationalist. Was he a Nazi? Gandhi was a nationalist. Was he a Nazi? No. So there's something beyond nationalism that drove Nazism. And what it primarily was, was environmentalism. Returning God to nature, worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator, and engaging in an environmentalism that ended up hurting people. There's many favorite philosophers that Adolf Hitler had, Martin Heidegger, Friedrich Nietzsche, but his absolute favorite was a man named Arthur Schopenhauer. Listen to what Arthur Schopenhauer said. He died in the 1800s. So this is from the 1800s. This is the favorite philosopher of Adolf Hitler. Arthur Schopenhauer said, quote, We owe the animals not mercy but justice. And the debt often remains unpaid in Europe, the, con- the continent that is permeated with Foter Judaica. Stop there. What's Foter Judaica? It's a Latin phrase meaning the stench of the Jews. He goes on to say it is obviously high time in Europe that Jewish views on nature were brought to an end. You see, dear ones, when it came to the biblical worldview, the Bible says humans rule over nature. The Nazis say humans are equal to nature. Let me explain the pattern that I see. You know, oftentimes for many years, we've heard people say we have to learn from this. We can never go back. We have to always remember when it comes to the Holocaust. But if we're going to remember what happened, let's get our facts straight. Let's first understand what really happened with Nazism. You see, the same pattern, I think, is happening today. Let me lay out the pattern. In Germany, after World War I, there was a movement called Neo-Orthodoxy. Neo-Orthodoxy devastated the church of its time. Why? Because it denigrated the Word of God. It said the only Word of God is Jesus, and the Scriptures that you have are only man's interpretation of Jesus' words, and they are fallible. They oftentimes will go beyond what is right and real. In fact, they would claim that the Scriptures only become God's Word when you have an existential experience. And so in Orthodoxy, New Orthodoxy, they jettison the Scriptures, and within a generation, you have Nazi environmentalism. 1990s in America, in the early 2000s, the grandchild of the New Orthodox movement, the emerging church, comes into vogue. And what does it do? It takes the Scriptures away from the people of God again by saying, you can't know what it says. You can't know it. And it takes our Scriptures away. All we're left is existential experience again. And now we have left-wing environmentalism where people can hardly afford to eat and people are going to die around the planet. The same pattern. If we're going to learn, if we're going to remember what happened, let us know the facts that it's that kind of evil and environmentalism that was really the Nazi movement. That's what drove it. And so environmentalism is contrary to the Scriptures. Notice what the Scriptures say. Genesis 1.26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice here this phrase, let us make man. The more I've studied this, I'm convinced that the us here is probably a reference to the Trinity. It probably is a reference back to verse 2 where the Spirit is a co-creator with God. Unless we think that there's no Trinitarian language in the Bible, Jesus says there is. Psalm 110.1, Yahweh made an utterance to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy or your, a footstool for your enemies. I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sorry, I gaffed the, the quote. Psalm 110.1 is Trinitarian. So says not Eric Thomas, so says Jesus himself. It's Trinitarian. I think this is Trinitarian as well. Let us make man in our image, the image of God, and what? Let them rule. The term rule there, radah, means to dominate, to control, to subdue. And this is exactly what the Nazis hated. And the German church, infected with new orthodoxy, who said we can't know God from the scriptures, they went along with it. But you know who wouldn't give up on Genesis 1.26? The Jews. The Jews wouldn't give up, and so they have to go to the ovens. That's what's happening today. If you don't agree with the agenda, you've got to go to jail. You gotta, you can't, you're worried about feeding your family, being able to put gas in your car, being a flight instructor? Try that today with $7 a gallon, 100 low that gas. Oh, well, we don't need pilots, right? Well, no, human beings made in the image of God are called to subdue and have dominion over the earth. The whole of creation is created for our good, not the other way around. That's the biblical worldview, and that's what Jesus is affirming here today. Are you not worth much more than they? Not a little more. Are you not worth much more than they? Of course you are. You're a human being made in the image of God. Dear ones, this coming election, let us stand against those who say that human beings don't get to use gasoline or fossil fuels to heat their homes, to fuel their vehicles, and to work to put food on the table for their family. That is an evil that we need to stand against. Now, with that, let's come to our second point today. And that is another principle we learned today is the study, is that our study of what Jesus forbids about worrying for tomorrow. We are not to worry for tomorrow because, in fact, we belong to a God who cares for us. Now, does this mean if we are not to worry, we are not to work? No. We have to be those who work and prepare for our future. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Please turn your Bibles there. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. We're going to learn something from Solomon's wisdom, and we're going to be learning from how ants work and prepare and how we ought to act for our future as well. Again, Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Here Solomon says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now here in verse 10, this is the motto of the sluggard. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That was my motto when I was a teenager. Verse 11, 
Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Germans notice the lack of work and the lack of preparation leads to starvation. No, both in the Old Testament and in the New, we are called to have a high work ethic. People are willing to work and prepare to put food on their table. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, If a man does not work, neither shall he eat. Perhaps one of the most unpopular verses for those who don't like to work. Let me show you another one, 1 Timothy 5.8. It says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, this is written to the church at Ephesus, but to all of us, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think about that. If we won't provide for our own family through hard work, the man is worse than an unbeliever. So yes, dear ones, all the way through the scriptures, our role is to work and to plan for our family. But what we learn today in the passage in Matthew is that we're to jettison the worry. Work hard, plan hard for the future, but ditch the worry. And that's what we learn. So that's why we see, for example, in Hebrews 13.5, the writer of Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Stop there. Why? Because that takes us away from covetousness, where we long for the creation rather than the creator. But notice in the very next clause, we can trust God for our provision. He says, for he himself, that's Jesus, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That is, we can trust Jesus is going to provide for us. Dear ones, First Peter 5, 7, you and I are called to throw all of our anxieties upon him who cares for us. This is something that I had to learn the hard way as a man worried about failing a check ride because of sleep deprivation. And in many years since, I've struggled. But I think it is true that we learn in the Scriptures, yes, work, but don't worry. Again, worry adds nothing to our lives. It only steals. It never provides. Let's go to our final point, and that is where our focus should be. All the way through Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus wants the focus of his people not to be merely on our daily needs, but the eternal provision that we ultimately need. And that's why Jesus said today in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking the kingdom of Christ looks like being people devoted to the gospel, devoted to living lives that are obedient to him. And so if you and I are just going to plan on our next meal and the next clothing deal, we'll be consumed with those things. But we're called to live to be consumed with a higher value, to be consumed with the coming of Christ and his kingdom. And so in Hebrews eleven six, I'm going to use this passage today to give you the gospel, that we would live for this eternal provision. Notice here, the writer of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, stop there for just a moment. Why is it that we can only please God by faith? Well, the reason that's the case is every single human being has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all rebels against him. And so this rebellion that we all have in thought, word, and deed has incurred an infinite judgment. We've insulted the infinite God, and it requires, therefore, an eternal separation in the lake of fire. That's the judgment that we have because of our rebellion. 
Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary death, separation of body and soul, but one day in eternal death, separated from God in the lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news. And if it weren't revealed, I wouldn't have believed it. But it is true. And that's why the good news of the gospel shines, because by faith, notice on, again, Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, we are given something called the great transaction. So what God did to remedy our problem is he sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in history, he became a man, truly God and truly man in one person. By the way, that is not a contradiction. It would be a contradiction to say that he's God and not God at the same time in the same relationship, or that he's truly a man and not truly a man at the same time in the same relationship. We're not saying that. We're saying that he's truly God and truly man in one person. I am truly a father to my son, and I'm truly a son to my father. Simultaneously, no contradiction. Jesus is unique in that he's the God-man, the only person. In fact, the term monogenes in the New Testament means that he's the unique one. Truly God, truly man. Why? Because he had to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He had to live the perfect life. Because we couldn't, he did it. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He went and died a substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus the just, on behalf of us the unjust, as a substitute so that we might be brought to God. The moment you trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you get the great transaction. You're given something that you need that you don't have, Christ's righteousness, and you get rid of something that you can't have, your sin debt that Christ paid off at Calvary. That great transaction happens not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what we need. Now, how do we know that Jesus did this? Well, remember, he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he ascended to the heavens, he's seated at the right hand of God, from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom. And so notice here in Hebrews eleven six, it says, For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Notice that in blue? What kind of reward are we ultimately look, looking for? Not just the forgiveness of sins, but the resurrection and the everlasting life. Jesus is coming again, and he's going to bring a glorious kingdom for his people. That's the great reward. But for his enemies, he's going to bring wrath and destruction. And so that's why we as believers can't be consumed merely with the little problems of this life, lest we get carried away from the focus of the eternal reward. Today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day to repent, turn from idolatry, and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon him, you will be one who is a partaker, not just of temporary provision, although he'll take care of that, but you'll be a partaker of everlasting provision. Today is the day to trust upon Jesus Christ, seek his kingdom first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that in your scriptures you, can, you teach us that we can work and plan, but we don't have to be a people who worry about our provision. We don't have to worry about our finances. We can give all things to you, Lord. We thank you for these words. We do pray in the weeks and months and years ahead 
that we would be a people who trust you as difficult times come or maybe great times come, but that you would always be the one that we can trust, Yahweh, Yerah, the God who sees and therefore provides for his people. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd be a beacon of light to those who are in darkness and distress because of this world, that you would give us the gospel on our lips, you'd give us boldness and the opportunity to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to others, our family, our coworkers, and our friends, those who need to know you. We pray that you'd do this through us and for us, for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.